Happy Bill of Rights Day, dude. Is that what today is? Yeah, December 15th. It's the 225th birthday of Virginia's ratification of the Bill of Rights. Booyah! Huh. Kind of ironic. <laughs> <laughs> so I... Uh, everything it, feels awkward, it will be the it? day that they, you know, that we celebrate that we used to have a Bill of Rights. Oh. So we're not... Are we going to... There was something about when they started capitalizing Bill of Rights as a proper noun. Did you see that in the... No, I didn't. That sounds like something Gerald Malioka would write. Lori Ringhand. Hi. Welcome. Special guest. Special election law expert guest. So are we going to get to the bottom of this today? Is this... No. Yeah, we're going to solve all the problems today. <laughs> yeah, what's... I, I, let me rephrase. What is this, the bottom of which you'd like to get to? Well, let's let's lay down a, 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 a marker in the timeline so that when they dig this one up in the vaults, they'll say, oh, that, that this was... This is when this one happened. Here's what's disappointing. I can already tell that the answer to my question, what is this, is not a plastic tub of chocolate frosting. Because <laughs> if, if we could get to the bottom of that, I'd be psyched. <laughs> that would but be I can tell already that's not the answer. I feel like you'd be sick after getting to the bottom of little that. Sick, little yeah, sick. That doesn't well, it depends on how much is in there when you start. It's I don't know. so nice to be here with you guys and <laughs> see you haven't changed at all. <laughs> No, not really. I mean, I feel like the more fraught the topic, mm. the more we may dance around. Mm. And is this? Would you say that this is the most fraught topic that we've ever dealt with? Depends. I don't know what the topic is yet. <laughs> well, Lori is here, which suggests an answer. But yeah. why don't you tell us the answer? I mean, we, we've done shows. We did shows after the after the shooting in Orlando. Mm. We did a show right after the election. Uh, we so we've done fraught shows before, but but this one we're going to talk about. The election, the electors, mm. House of Representatives. Mm. Like what, we just want to figure out what in the heck is going on. Yeah. Because <laughs> there are some of us who say, let's just shut that, let's shut the whole thing down until we can figure out what's going on. Yeah. People have said that before, right? <laughs> uh, so so, so, it, so I'm, I'm dancing around because it is fraught. So what's going to happen? So one thing we should get on the table right away because we're so good. At, I'm, I'm never... I'm, I haven't been this confident about making predictions um, ever before. I feel like how I did in oh. November is just like amazing. So this is a great prediction, right? Here's what's going to happen. Okay, table set. Uh, what's set gonna, the table. What's going to happen on the 19th is that the electors are going to gather in their respective states and they're going to cast their ballots. And uh, Donald Trump is going to receive the requisite 270 or more uh, electoral votes and he's going to take the oath of office on January 20th. That's what's going to happen. Um, but okay, clearly so we're not going <laughs> to stop there. So so what else should we talk about? Hmm. Well, I, I think we should, you know, there's this whole move right now uh, for the Hamiltonian electors. The, you know, there's, there, there are lawsuits that have been filed and ongoing right now as to whether electors in various states, which purport to have laws constraining those electors, whether those laws are constitutional, yep. what the penalties can be. Yep. So there's all of that. And then there's the issue of no matter what happens with the electors, what happens in the House of Representatives, what kind of, and this is, let's, let's get out on the table too, that this is not the first time that the three of us have talked about this. True. The last time, I, I think, think. I yelled at you. <laughs> I think it involved shouting last time. Yeah. I think all three of us <laughs> spoke at above our normal level of voice <laughs> at different moments in that conversation. That might be true. And th this is what the show lives for really. But, uh, yeah. So, hmm. so I think we should also talk about, you know, how the electors should respond. Like what, what is, what constitutional role do they have? 
um, and whether that's whatever role that is, is is different in this election than in other elections. Um, can I can I ask a, a, yeah. a question that sounds like it's not about these issues, but is? Oh boy! So, Lori, you as as someone who does uh, study and teach election law, um, uh, I'm interested to know uh, sort of what the going theory is or the going thought is on on uh, election litigation generally, mm-hmm. in, especially with reference to two things. One I'm wondering is what what are the what's the prevailing thought on who has standing to challenge a practice that they don't like for whatever reason they might not like it because it, it distorts their vote in a certain way they might not like it because they're a candidate um, or, or they wish they could be a can- whatever I mean, lots of reasons not to like something I'm just wondering who has formal standing in a in a judicial sense and um, and I'm also wondering in terms of election litigation. Um, the, the timing issue, like what's the prevailing view on what's the right time, right? Because it, it seems like on the one hand, if you bring a case sort of too far before an election has taken place, it's kind of not ripe. Like sure. you, you don't know exactly what's going to happen yet. If you wait till after the fact, everyone's like, wait a minute, you can't change the rules of the game. We just had the game. The game's over. Right. So it seems like there's when do you get to raise your objection? Could you? Yeah. I mean, I think standing is is, is it always is in all issue is pretty easy to manipulate. Um, I'm not sure I could articulate a across-the-board standing rule for election law cases with the possible caveat that the court's much more receptive to granting voters standing than candidates. Mm. Um, And on your second question, there is actually a a somewhat guiding principle on the timing question that Rick Hayson has, uh, Rick Hayson, the election law professor, um, has articulated the Purcell principle named after the Supreme Court case that first articulated something like this. Um, And the general idea of the Purcell principle is that barring truly exceptional circumstances, courts should be very leery of changing the rules of the game when you're in the middle of it. Um, And And so what is in the middle of it? Like, how do people think about what that general time frame is? It has usually been talked about in the lead up to the election, because most of the challenges that courts have seen, with Bush v. Gore perhaps being the obvious exception, um, have happened to pre-election day, challenges to uh, voter suppression, challenges to changes in polling times, issues like that. And on those scenarios, in those scenarios, courts have not uniformly, but generally been reluctant to step in in the weeks right before balloting and say you can or cannot do this. The status quo has had a lot of, of pull in those so, cases. So looking at the last like two or three years then, or, and maybe even longer, um, voter ID litigation, mm-hmm. people challenging whether a voter ID requirement is lawful or not. Um, first, that's a voter who's doing it, so it kind of comports mm-hmm. with your idea that it's voters are more solicitously welcome into the courthouse. Um, and my sense of those cases, although I'm not an expert and and look at them only distantly, my sense of those cases is they they were sort of rolling along well in advance of any particular balloting. Um, they've been going on for several years now right. in various different places. Right. So you didn't run into this problem of people feeling like the rules are getting changed in the middle of the right. game. Right. And and of course also that timing allows cases or courts to hear these cases kind of as normal cases. What happens when you get very close to um, elections is you start getting uh, uh, requests for injunctive relief. Um, And that's, of course, a different ballgame. And courts don't like deciding important issues on that basis when they're consequential immediately. Right. So, And in other words, courts seem to be thinking about, and 
on these are my words, not yours or anybody else's, but, but courts seem to be thinking about considerations that, that the FBI director might want to think about uh, uh, it going forward, right? That, the, that you can intervene with a sort of a major announcement about something, and if it's done at the wrong time, even if it's accurate, if it's done at the wrong time, it can really throw everything cock-a-hoop in a way that just kind of makes everyone feel as if everything's unfair. As much as I appreciate the snark, I actually think the analogy doesn't hold very well because oh, okay. when, when, when courts express reluctance to... Uh, make these decisions very close to election day. They're actually doing it for pretty pragmatic reasons um, because they are they are very aware that we had a, have a radically decentralized system of election administration, mm. which is staffed um, in a large part on election day by volunteers. Yeah. And there's very basic levels of if you change the rules, if you change the procedures, um, days or even just a few weeks before the election, getting that out and implemented in a coherent manner can be just chaotic. Um, so it's not even necessarily about issues of perceptions of fairness. It's about election administration. Mm, great. Everything interesting is about election administration. <laughs> the, and Christian, the yeah. reason I asked about those things yeah. is because I think the the host of issues that, that you raised um, and the many more that have been on people's minds, um, you know, you, we can think of them in, two, in at least two different ways. Uh, sort of senses. One is, what might we want to do now that the events we're living in the middle of right now have, have alerted us to the existence of problems we want to address going forward, right? Like, what litigation might you want to bring today that you hope would get fully and, f and finally settled before 2020 or 2018, if you're thinking about, you know, congressional races or, or state races? Um, 2020, in the case of the president and presidential you know, the electoral college system. Uh, that's one sense in which you could look at them. The other sense in which you could look at them is, wait a minute, we're not done, right? Like the electors haven't gathered on Monday yet. It's not yet December 19th. Um, we need to do something that affects what they're going to do on December 19th, right? Which is a very different do sense wanna, in which to talk about them. Do you want to talk a little bit before we go all the way down there? Um, <laughs> do you want to talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of what we actually mean when we say when the electors meet? I think we should. I, sure. I'd also like to know... Given the, given the prelude, the topic that you just raised, but what are the problems in this election? Because you know what kind of procedure you focus on, and the and the disputed rules for that procedure, the controversies over it, kind of depend on, you know, what you're going to focus on depends on what you perceive as the problems. Totally. So what are, I mean, the way that you were just talking, Joe, makes me think of problems like access to polling, voter ID, and maybe even the existence of the electoral college. Know this kind of should we have that rule rather than this other rule because we have a situation where someone wins by a lot in the popular vote but loses because of a few tens of thousands of votes in a few states. Mm -hmm. Those are the rules under which the election was held. But the question is, should those continue to be the rules? And we could talk about that, right? Um, but are those the problems, or are there other problems with this election? And the answer is probably both and more. <laughs> I mean, there are probably all these problems, all these problems, and then other problems we're not even thinking of. But but that someone, if they were here, might say, "Hey, this is a problem too." Um, so I don't know what you think the best way, and you might object to my framing that I've done. No, even I don't, in I don't the, object. In the prior it's just few minutes, but if if those are the only problems, boy, it would be better to have a national popular vote. It would be better to have a national holiday and election day. It would be better to have uniform rules for ID. Like, all of that is just going forward talk. And we would have no issue at all about defecting electors or, you know, or, or 
the 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 various merits of proceeding by um, electoral college derailment or impeachment or you know these th- those seem to be special to this election. Yeah. Right. Um, so anyway, let maybe we should lay out the procedure first, Lori, even if we're not sure about what sure. kind of problem we're trying to address. So, I mean, we talk about the Electoral College meeting. The Electoral College doesn't actually meet as a group, right? The, the different electors from the different states meet in their respective state capitals. Um, and as you all certainly know, um, state law, usually in conjunction with political party um, internal rules, uh, working through state law, some states bind their electors as a matter of state law to vote for the winner of the popular vote in that state. Other states don't. Um, it looks like there's, um, it's close to half and half, I think slightly less than half states, half of the states um, are unbound. Um, Donald Trump has 155 unbound electors. Um, that, that's the number of electors who are not bound by state law. To, to affirmatively, as a matter of state law, vote in accordance with the popular vote of their state. Um, but they meet in their state capitals as groups um, of electors. They are at liberty to vote for whoever they want as a matter of federal law. Um, again, state law, one of the issues that people are talking about is whether state law can bind. Um, but as a matter of, of federal law, Assuming no state law is in place, electors can um, can vote for anybody. Unlike the House of Representatives, the House of Representatives has to choose from the top three vote getters um, right. of the the ballots cast by the electors. I've seen, I saw some confusion about that on on my Facebook page, where lots of people are confused about who the House could vote for if it goes there, and how, how all that happens. And just to clarify again, the Electoral College meets. They vote as a bo- as a disaggregated body. Correct. I mean, I, they meet in their respective state capitals. They cast some votes. Uh, those votes are transmitted to the House. Correct. If no one gets a majority in the House, if 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 they open up all those um, all those buckets and they count all the electoral votes and no one gets a majority, then the House has a decision to make, which you'll describe in a second. But the only people from whom they can choose are the top three vote getters. That's correct. So and the Electoral College certainly has this agenda setting. And authority. that's for the that's for the uh, race for president. The electors vote separately for president and vice president, um, and the vice president vote of the electors actually goes to the Senate. Um, I believe. Oh, that I did not, not know. Not the House of Representatives. Uh, so these electors who are gathering in their respective states and casting their ballots that they're going to pack up and send to Washington to be opened in the sight of the sitting vice president. So and they do that quite literally. They, yeah. they fill out, I think, seven certificates and send them to various entities. Yeah, so Diamond Joe Biden will be there in January presiding over the opening of these ballots, and a member of the House, can, I guess, can challenge, and if a senator joins them in a challenge for a given ballot, this happened in 2004, I believe, with the Kerry vote from Ohio, if I'm remembering correctly, might have happened uh, in Bush in the Bush v. Gore um, aftermath as well. I don't recall that as well. Um, I don't recall it as carefully as I think the Ohio 2004 vote. In any event, uh, they they pack up their ballots, they send them to Washington D.C. Uh, so the, if there are electors who, according to the laws of their states, are not bound to vote a particular way, uh, and they're not bound by federal law to vote a particular way. Um, uh, well, then how will they vote, right? And, of course, the reason I said what I said at the very beginning and the reason why I think it would shock a lot of people <laughs> if they didn't vote the way they voted in all of the 
non-profoundly bizarre, strange, and disturbing elections. Um, the reason it would shock people if they didn't vote that way is because they voted that way a lot of times. And that's what everyone thinks is going to happen, what everyone expects to happen in the normal course of events, right? Um, so the Electoral College is reduced to points. Right. Well, you win a state, you get a certain number of points. Right. In, a nor in the normal course of events, it looks like a transmission belt. It doesn't look like a group of human beings who, who have an independent judgment to make about what to do. It also looks a bit like democracy as opposed to having, you know, 270 random people do whatever the hell they want. Yeah, tra a transmission belt for like the machines on which we vote themselves, right? You, you have a preference. You've been asked to register your preference. You go and you do it. And there's a machinery, literally a machinery, for gathering up the tokens and marks, et cetera, and then we count those things up. That's how we do it, right? That's how people vote. Uh, um, to be clear, I mean, and they're just another part of the transmission belt on one model of what they might do. Yeah, but that the function of that transmission belt is to multiply everybody's vote by a certain factor depending on what state you live in. Well, it is now, right? Because right. we live under this electoral college right. system, right? It's not a pure national popular vote. Uh, for for the president and the vice president, as it is in the states for senators, so right? that's, a, that's a like or, or their governors, right? That's a pure yeah. popular vote for that jurisdiction. Uh, we don't do that yet. I wish we did, but we don't do that yet uh, nationally for the president and the vice president. But there's this again. There's this gap that because they're not a transmission belt, they're not a machine. They're human beings, right? And and a bunch of them under the formal law state law and national law together, both, um, they're not obliged to do any particular thing. They're obliged by custom and by norm, if those are two different things, um, to, to vote a particular way, but not formally. Am I understanding that correctly? That's when you say they're not bound, right? Yes. Um, so what, so what should about they do? These, what about these, before we get to what they should do, what about these state laws which purport to bind them? What's the cutting edge thinking about the constitutionality of that? Yeah, um, you you may have seen the uh, the attorney, the current attorney general of California, Camilla Harris, whose name you certainly know because she just won a U.S. Senate seat, yeah. um, and is actually frequently talked about as a future presidential candidate. Um, her office just filed a brief in California. Um, supporting the bindingness of California state law on electors. Um, and the the argument that states are allowed to bind electors is is based in in the Constitution, of course, which, which sets out it gives states broad power um, to define the manner in which the electors are appointed. And the argument for bindingness, um, the legal argument for bindingness, is, is that that power includes the ability to require electors to be bound in ways that the state law requires them to be bound. So it wouldn't, the Constitution wouldn't require the states to bind electors, but, but, it, but it would permit them. them. It, gives the, it gives states, under this argument, the power to do so. If they choose. Mm -hmm. So, it, yeah, this is, it's, it's interesting because, of course, the only way this national popular vote movement, which which um, purports to kind of change over to a popular vote without actually changing the Constitution by getting enough states, enough that represent 270, to agree that their electors will all vote for the national popular vote winner. The only way that actually works is if they can bind their yeah. electors to that rule. So it's interesting, if you're for the popular vote, but you don't think we can get a constitutional amendment, in, in some ways, like, you know, substantively, you're, you're attracted to this idea of bindingness. On the right. other hand, it's an interpretation of the Constitution, which gives states the power 
more or less to eliminate this institution as a separate institution within their state. What do you mean by that? Meaning that they have no decisional authority whatsoever. And so so an, inst- an institution which is just a pass-through is, is not really a legal institution. That's consistent, though, with Article 2, which does give states authority over choosing and appointing these electors. Um, And I think you would be on tricky territory to, let me put that the opposite way. I I think there's a pretty strong argument to be made if you're interested in original intent arguments that the intent was to um, empower states as much as to empower individual electors in this process. Um, I personally don't think that uh, originalist arguments in relation to the Electoral College are particularly persuasive, given the tremendous changes um, that we have undergone as a society about what we think democratic governance looks like. Um, I don't know that anyone, any the, the thoughts that people had in 1789 and 1790 were quite different um, than the thoughts we have about what representative democracy looks like today. Yeah, and it's a slavery compromise. Electoral College. There's always that, right? If you're there's always to... that, that too. Yep. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, I think the the argument about what the elector elector should do, whether we should have ele- an electoral college, really has to take place in the context of public perceptions and understandings and the agreements, um, the deep agreements about democratic governance today, which will include some of the same considerations, of course, that the founding generation had, but. Uh, our ideas about what it means to live in a system of democratic representation are just very, very different than they were then. So to get back to this uh, argument about the states and bindingness, so Christian, you were saying, you know, when a state, like let's assume the states have the power under the Constitution to bind electors in the presidential uh, electoral college process, if they decide to, they're not required to, but they have the power to, um, that a state could decide that they want to minimize to the barest possible transmission belt level what those electors are doing, right? They're simply meeting to be a pass-through, as you said, right? There's there's a vote total. Everyone knows what it is. They write a name on a piece of paper. It's foreordained, right? Anyone could do it. It wouldn't really matter who you picked because anyone would be obliged to do yeah, the they're thing more, they're going to do. They're more like notaries. Yeah, um, so a state could decide to do that um, or not. Uh, about Lori, I think you said before about half the states have decided to do that, and about half haven't. Um, I don't know what my baseline expectation would have been about which states did what, but and to be clear, even in the states that don't legally bind their electors, there is, as Joe you noted earlier, there is a a very very deep custom and expectation that those electors will vote in accordance with the popular will of the state. And, and the custom and, and norm may may come as much uh, from, from anything as from the fact that uh, the people who are chosen to play this role, my understanding is, um, are typically sort of party regulars. Right? Correct. So the slate of electors that the Democrats uh, chose in Georgia um, these are not the people who will cast Georgia's electoral votes because the Democratic candidate didn't win the majority of the vote. But the Democratic electors are sort of Democratic Party regulars and just so for the Republican Party, right? And so those party regulars are, of course, going to observe the custom as a party matter, right, that they'll vote for, because after all, their party won the popular vote in that state. And of course, we'd want to think really hard about what a world would look like in which electors were unbound by law or custom. Um, because that's, um, 
that's a very different world than what we live in. And it changes the incentives for voting. Um, as you point out, Joe, it renders the actual popular vote potentially utterly useless. Um, and it also encourages a lot of potential gaming and manipulation of those electors um, negotiating amongst themselves. This is not a public process. Um, I, it, it's, it's a really troubling picture to imagine a scenario where we breach the norm and expectation that electors vote under accordance with um, the expectations that the elections was held, election was held under. And I think if you, if you think about, now I think one thing we can rule out based on the constitutional requirement that the electors meet in their several states on a particular day, uh, and I think the text of the Constitution does say there's, there's going to be a day when they meet. Um, I think what that means is... Um, does it? I, I think it does. Yes. I think our Article 2, Section 1 says they're going to meet on a day. Right. It doesn't specify the day, yeah, but it says I, they're going to meet right. on a day. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. I think what that they, rules, they will meet at a point in time. Yeah. I think <laughs> what that I think what that rules out is um, I think it rules out that that multiple states could decide to choose a given slate of electors because those individual human beings can't be in multiple states on on the same day uh, with the practicalities of travel being what they are maybe for three or four states but it'd be hard for example if florida and california and maine and hawaii all decided you know what oprah is awesome and i trust her and she has great judgment and so let's make oprah one of our electors this is on the model where you think electors are not transmission belts they're there to exercise wise prudent judgment, right? Um, They can't do that because Oprah can't be in Honolulu and Sacramento and well, et cetera, et cetera, all all on the same day, just for the practicalities being what they are. I mean, Maybe yeah, someday different states be, can meet on different days, and you know. no, I don't think so. I think no, the constitution can't. rules that out. I think nope. it says they have to meet on a day, on a given day. It doesn't specify that day, it's, but it says a day. What, the, what does it say? It's set the way that um, Easter is set. Right? It's it's not the same calendar date every year, but it's the same in relation to something else. Yeah. And um, no, I don't have the words. Oh, so so it's, the, it's, it's a certification of the the vote where, where there's a, a federal statutory safe harbor, but the electors under the constitution have to meet on a, on a fixed day yeah. around it's, the country. Okay. This, this yeah. a, it's a minor point. I'm yeah. just saying it, the, the, I think there are some sort of weird things that the text probably does rule out and no one would try to do them anyway. But, but again, I, I think Lori, picking up on your point, uh, your deeper and much more important point. If you think about the way you think the world would probably look, had we been treating the electors as independent decision makers, exercising judgment, the world would look really different and would have looked different for quite some time, right? We right. Would have, there's all sorts of things we would right. have been doing very differently. Can we? I w- that's where we need to go eventually, and I want to fight about that. Uh, but <laughs> before we do, can we talk about the just a, a minute more on the bindingness part? Yeah. Like functionally, how does it work? As I understand it, I mean, well, there are declaratory judgment actions and other things, but a state can make can can put in place penalties on an elector if if this is constitutional right. saying if you don't vote the right way there'll be some penalty right but so like that doesn't or... change the vote right i mean that doesn't when it gets to the house it's still the person still voted how they voted and so essentially you have a bit of a law which is requiring a state representative to act in a particular way under penalty of law but that penalty doesn't change that elector's vote so it's weird because i can't think of another situation where 
make where a state decision maker is required to make a decision in a particular way under penalty of law. One, two, where uh, it, to, the second problem is, of course, you know they can decide to go to jail, but I, it, it doesn't change their vote, does it? Well, and I think there's a question of what the what the House of Representatives is obligated to do with a elector vote cast. Um, illegally, as defined by state law, because I, and I think that's a real question. And I'm just I, I, as I'm thinking through this, there's a somewhat analogous um, uh, area that's that's come up, and you guys can pick this analogy apart. And I'm not sure how how good it is, but there is a a, a body of law that talked about the respective powers of state political parties and national political parties in regard to political party primaries. Um, and basically the upshot of this was that states can decide how to choose the folks that they send to the national party convention to cast the ballots on behalf of the state for the winner of the primary. That states have autonomy to decide how they do that. The National Party can't tell them how to do that, but nor can states tell the National Party who they have to accept. Mm. So much like the House of Representatives and the senators who could lodge an objection to a particular electoral college vote when it arrives in Washington, right, because there's a process for doing that, but you have to have a, a House member and a senator join in an objection. And maybe they could. They could join in the objection that says, look, we need to throw out this vote. Now, back to Christian's point, it still hasn't been changed. Right. right. It, there's no court that's going to order that that name be erased and some other name be written in. Although. How do you know that? Because I don't. Well, uh, m my understanding of the processes that I know about is that there isn't a judicial involvement in that if the House member and the senator object and it gets thrown out and uh, maybe there is a process it's for replacing surely a it, political I, question once it gets in the house right one would think so but i think we are deeply in our uncharted territory here as you pointed out and uh, one should never rely on <laughs> courts deciding that they don't have jurisdiction to decide stuff yeah i mean you you're, you're, you all know justice kennedy right right this seems <laughs> though quintessentially yeah but like would the, a dc so yeah. what would a dc district court judge do Probably throw it out. If someone ran from the I'm, house. I'm being devil's advocate <laughs> As here. fast right. as possible. Um, yeah, we're, we're in this, uh, we're in this uh, uh, time when, um, you know, we have these processes and mechanisms. Uh, they admit of certain possibilities, possibilities that, again, in the mine run of cases, I might be prepared to say, in every prior election in U.S. history, I might not, but I might be prepared to say that, no one would have given these things a second thought. Right, but we're we we're in the middle of a set of facts that are are uniquely troubling. Um, of course, they're also troubling in ways that are not unique at all. Right, there's a winner and a loser. That's always true. Mm -hmm. uh, the people who lost are upset. That's also always true. The people who won are getting out ahead of their skis. That's usually true. <laughs> um, so there's there's unique. Uh, aspects of this and not unique aspects of it and and, and we're and in people, this twilight zone it's not unusual for people to have meaningful disagreements and meaningful you know revulsions and in excitement and like these are not it's not just a matter of like sports it doesn't really matter these are very meaningful things and that is the mind run of elections involves people being very disappointed for meaningful reasons and very excited for meaningful reasons right yes <clears throat> and normally i think the thing that um 
the thing that stops that reality from quickly morphing into, you know, blood on a street, which is something hap that happens a lot of places over a lot of times in, a, in world history um, and today, um, it, it is that people accept the outcome even if they lost, right. and even when their feelings are running very, very high, right? right? Um, people accept it, and it's interesting that they do be because they see in it a kind of fairness that isn't um, uh, annihilating. In instead, it's it's sort of like, well, you know, better luck next time, right? They can there's sort of a hopefulness even in the loss that. Well, next time we'll just we'll do what we can, and maybe we'll do better. The key right? words are next time, right? It's this yeah. faith that there will be a next time, which justifies the acceptance. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's it. and there are a lot of folks who feel now like they're in a they're in they're feeling feelings of despair, and they're feeling like, is there going to be a next time? Well, but people it, who yeah. are advocating for an electoral college revolt. Um, seem to take as a given that that can be cabined. The, they take as a, a given the extraordinary uniqueness of this election cycle. Um, and whether or not that is a factually true statement, um, until you win the political battle and have overwhelming majorities of American citizens who voted for both of our candidates, not just one, believe that, then an electoral coup is not going to be cabinable. Um, because and when you not, say not cabinable, what do you mean? I mean, if you unleash that beast once and tell electors that they are free to disregard the popular will or the rules and expectations under which the election was conducted, you change the rules and expectations. You change what the electors will feel bound to do next time. Because there, there's a not insignificant population in this country who would be feeling the exact sense of illegitimacy if Hillary Clinton had won this election. And you know, one can disagree that that is a um, appropriate equivalence, um, but in a question like this, it actually doesn't matter if it's a accurate or inaccurate sense of equivalence because this is about perceptions of legitimacy. And as, as Joe just alluded to, the peaceful transfer of power depends on people believing that if they win, they get the power. Yeah, and if they lose, they don't. Um, and the next time, things can be different. I think, I, think they, I think they believe all three of those things. It's that, those, that phrase, next time, which is so loaded here, right? Because right. on the one hand, a concern that there won't be a next time is a reason to kind of go to war, right? <laughs> to, for liberal values. Uh, you know, liberal democracy. But if you do that and you, and, and you, uh, you violate these norms which tie popular vote to uh, political victory, then the next time is not going to be like all the times we had before, right? So no matter what you do, next time changes. Yeah, indeed, it could prevent there being a next time. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, I, I think the... <laughs> uh, and this very quickly gets into, because we're intelligent people as as many people are uh most people um we're we're intelligent people so so uh, we, our are. minds race right and we can think of all these situations so this very quickly gets pretty freaky um but you know it, the the same reason that i think um a, an electoral college balloting process that produces a winner other than donald trump right 
um, <laughs> would be um, r r really bad <laughs> in the sense of producing lots of physical violence where a lot of people get hurt, some fatally. Um, the same brain that lets me think that lets me think further things like uh, it, it won't prevent him ultimately from uh, taking the oath of office. It could materially increase the likelihood that we are within a year experiencing some form of martial law, mm -hmm. right? Um, the, the very effort to try to prevent it actually makes the version we get much worse. Right. I think the the advocacy for a electoral college revolt, um, I, I, it's unclear to me why people think that's going to, even the folks who believe that we are in a uniquely dangerous situation or a dangerous moment here for American democracy, why on earth would you think that would work? Um, because one of two things happen. Either there's a run at it and it fails, which I strongly suspect rallies voters back around Donald Trump because it looks like the, the, the other side is trying to cheat, um, which further empowers him and plants these seeds of reasons to do more extreme actions and therefore facilitates exactly the thing you're afraid of, as Joe just said. Um, or it succeeds. And if it succeeds, do we really think that all of the um, the individuals who believe that their candidate's victory has now been stolen from them are just going to shrug their shoulders and go away? <laughs> of course they're not, nor should they. Well, I don't know about should, but, you know, I think what <laughs> maybe whatever, uh, under any circumstance, there are going to be a lot of people who want to get rid of the Electoral College. I don't think this. that's true. And interest, interestingly enough, um, I, I taught election law this fall and spent a fair amount of time talking with my students. I think that there, there's a bit of a false perception that, you know, once the Electoral College and the way that it works and the way it deprives popular majority winners of, of the presidency, once people are kind of more aware of that and temperatures cool down a little bit, everyone will basically say, yeah, that's a bad idea. We should get rid of that. Um, that that's not what I'm seeing. Um, in talking to, you know, really smart, really bright, ideologically diverse students, there's quite a bit of sympathy for the idea that a indirect election of the president, which forces a certain type of regionalism, forces a president to have support in more than one region of the country's defining, I guess, coasts as a single region, that's pretty popular. Um, I, I, I think it is... Is this year different in that respect, or is this year like other years in that respect? I've talked more about it this year, so I don't really have apples-to-apples apples comparisons. Fair, yeah. um, but to the extent that I have talked about it with students in the past, they don't hate the Electoral College even when they fully understand it. It has a certain rhetorical appeal. And, I mean, it is basically affirmative action for smaller states. I mean, that's what it is. It, it, just you like, just do like, you mean less populous states? Yeah, what did I say? Smaller. Oh, I said smaller. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, you've not, also, not Rhode Island. You've all seen the, I, I assume, Joe and Christian, you've seen the uh, um, equal protection argument um, about yeah. the Electoral College. I mean, it's, it's an interesting idea because what it does is maintain, first of all, it's, um, it's not a constitutional change and it's more implementable than the national popular vote, which is never going to be enforced by a court. Um, so will only last as long as the first state has an incentive to, right. um, to right. defeat it. 
Um, but this equal protection argument is somewhat interesting because basically what it says is it's, it, it relies on the notion that Joe flagged earlier that the Constitution doesn't require states to distribute their electoral college votes in any particular way, right? It can bind them, but how the states decide what they instruct their electors, who they instruct their electors to vote for, um, is, is a thing that states can decide. Um, they don't have to decide winner-take-all within a state. So this argument basically says that one can make an equal protection attack not on the electoral college, not as a move toward a national popular vote, but on the basis that states violate the equal protection clause under a Bush v. Gore type of reasoning about weighting votes equally um, if they do anything in their state other than proportionate electoral college division based on the state vote. So it's essentially proportionality within the state. And if you you still keep the two, you, you still keep the regionalism, right? Because you still keep um, a bonus for ev- every state, um, regardless of population. So you maintain that regionalism, but you lessen its effect. Yeah, we call it the Wyoming problem, right? Which is the fact that it has three electoral votes, um, even though it has very few people living there relative to other places. So you get these, you get you get estimates like it's a factor of four, a factor of six, or if I, you know, I've seen different calculations. Yeah, four for every California. Uh, right. Um, so you, you, you keep some of the regionalism locked in, but you, but you attenuate it, you soften it by saying if every state is required to allocate its, its electors, uh, in proportion to the popular vote totals in that state, um, so that, uh, for example, um, the vote was very, very close in the three states people have talked about a lot over the last month, uh, uh, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, right? Um, and if, if all electoral votes across the United States were allocated proportionally, um, Secretary Clinton would get some of the electoral votes in each of those states. In fact, yeah, she'd like, get almost I, all of them. I, I have a couple of things to say. One, Wyoming is absolutely beautiful and maybe entitled to more votes on that ground. I mean, it's just <laughs> spectacular. So, so I'm, I have some sympathy for Wyoming. Um, the equal protection argument sounds to me not great. Um, and you don't even have to be an originalist to think that, that it proves way too much. Um, so, but we, we don't have How's to... How's that? Well... Uh, on non-originalist grounds? Yes. I don't understand exactly what the limiting principle, what the principle is that says that proportion has to be allocated with respect to this institution, but not other institutions. Um, you know, well, because what, we have what, winner take all governors, but, but what the, why not a board of governors that's distributed proportionally? The winner take all governors. It's not really a challenge against winner take all, right? Because because precisely because the electoral college intervenes. And so it's more like districting. It's more like the one person, one vote rules, which are now well established in constitutional law and have not been used as an assault on winner take all governance. I think the bigger problem with the equal protect, well, there's two problems. First is it's, um, it would be a top down judicial decision, which can can cause some difficulties. Um, The bigger problem, I think, and this is where I thought you were going when you said it has no limited principle. If it's right, then it should be right for third parties that get a de minimis number of voters. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
that's problematic. I mean, in one sense, that's good because third parties have very little um, ability to gain representation under winner-take-all seats. Um, so we, we would actually open up a door for third parties to get some sort of national profile, at least of a limited type. Um, but of course, that introduces all of the worst problems of truly proportionate legislative systems in which you could have third parties who, who, who get, um, get no more than 5% of the vote in a state, say, um, end up with a important swing vote in the Electoral College that then becomes the thing everyone tries to manipulate where those voters go and who they create coalitions with. It, it's almost like the national voting population <laughs> where almost everybody has their mind made up and we're appealing for the 4% of persuadable people who... Who live in Wisconsin. And yeah. who are the those target are my people. of all the media and everything else. So as Christian is fond of saying, um, the, you know... Uh, the there's a sense in which so much of this is about costs. And, and so it, it, the regional, um, the, the, the notion that it is good for someone running for president to have to appeal to multiple regions of the country, that sounds like a good thing. I agree, it does sound like a good thing in isolation. Um, and, but the next question is, at what cost? Right. So what, what do you get with a mechanism that permits you to, get th to obtain that benefit what cost does that mechanism impose? And right now we're looking at a really big version of one of yeah, those costs. if you costs. don't think about costs at all, you'd say, what would be great is if we could find the one person who's acceptable to all Americans. Well, and, <laughs> You should I have mean, to win all the votes to be president. The other thing that, that I think is interesting about the Electoral College versus a true national popular vote, um, it, it's one thing if Electoral College disparities in, in if 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 it's kind of randomized right if democrats and republicans are going to be harmed and and helped in kind of roughly the same proportion over time at least under current voting patterns that's unlikely to be true you know this didn't happen in a in in quite this way ever until 2000 now it's happened twice in 16 years and in both scenarios the democratic party won the popular vote obviously and lost the electoral college vote for all for for the foreseeable future, that's going to be what continues to happen, which brings us back to this idea of peaceful transfers of power. Um, a system may or may not be a good system, but when it consistently, repeatedly disadvantages one side of a political argument, that becomes a legitimacy problem as well. And the and the and the so I think the more looming legitimacy problem is uh, that the mechanisms we have for changing these fundamental institutions are themselves heavily um, supermajority based, right? Uh, you, you have to get big supermajorities to change them. Uh, and that means they're almost certainly not going to change. Uh, so we're, we're in, uh, we may be entering, this is the nihilist in me that comes out every once in a while. <laughs> um, we may be entering this sort of a period of imperial senescence where, you know, institutionally things are just going to continue to break down further and further because we can't fix the, the very things that are causing the breakdown. Which might be the best argument for the equal protection-based approach because you know courts could actually do that um, because right. it doesn't require constitutional change. It it's a process through that, that Americans are very familiar with in that courts um, strike down state laws as violating the equal protection clause. I, there, there's nothing new there. Yeah, and you could leave to states like working out, okay, so, you know, 
if you're going to allocate electors proportionally, are you going to use a round-up rule, a round-down rule? Is there going to be some minimum percent that a person needs to get to get even a single elector? A court could say, well, that's like the one-person, one-vote principle, that we let people work out some of the rough edges within their discretion, but in the main, this is what they have to I'm do. Not, I'm not as convinced as you guys, though, that that won't spark some of the same kinds of revolt. Well, it certainly would if we did it right now. I mean, to yeah. be clear, I, I, I think that the um, activism around this point as a, an immediate uh, path is as dangerous as messing around well, with I, the I electoral wanna go, college. I want to go there before you have to go because I know yeah, you're, we have two more minutes. For oh I know you're on a short, short time horizon here. But and then you and I are probably going to keep talking. That, that's fine. Uh, so, you know, where do we get to the breaking point? If you're an elector, okay, and you're trying to decide how to vote, Everything you guys say, and, and that I agree with, is absolutely true. And that's that, you know, it's, well, you know, as I've said, <laughs> you know, law is about norms. They, they're, it's yeah. inseparable. And there are huge costs to just doing whatever the heck you want to do, yeah. uh, including sparking a civil war, right? Totally possible uh, under, under a whole bunch of different scenarios. I think in the course of the election, there was one time when Donald Trump said that he could shoot somebody on the street dead and his supporters would still support him. All right, so that, that, that kind of incident seems to me at the far end of the spectrum. So if Donald Trump did shoot someone dead on the street, and is, that a, is that a reason for an elector to say, you know what, I have some power here, I'm going to use it? I think there's two answers to that. One is I, I believe Donald Trump was wrong when he said that he could shoot someone on the streets of Manhattan and his voters would still support him. Of course they wouldn't. Um, and that's related to the, the second answer um, if that happened, we would actually be in the situation where an electoral college revolt may be acceptable because there would be genuine, broad-based understanding on new, previously unavailable facts that this is that that, that it's required. There would um, be democratic support for unprecedented action. Right, and we're not yeah. there. Right. And, you know, we do, you, you, you talk about the, the risks of a Trump presidency. Um, we have procedures, right? We have inaugurate, investigate, and if appropriate, impeach. We have mechanisms and institutions and structures that are within our traditions, are s democratically accountable, um, that as far as we know, can actually manage a extreme case when it's actually convincing to a wide variety of Americans. Um, we're not there. So th th this, this is premature, um, as difficult as it can be to think that when you genuinely believe we're at ends of times types of, types well, of I, moments. I, I want to be, what's causing me such heartache about this is, you know, like, of course, I, I favored Clinton. I've said that. But that's aside. I, I say it's aside, but of course, this is the whole problem in, in trying to understand one, one's self, right? Is to what degree is this interfering with my analysis? You know, all that. Um, the Russian interference, wrong, right? So if, if all that had happened was that Russia hacked into uh, some email accounts, spread some information, and in fact, that information caused Trump's election, um, so suppose that's the case. Uh, I, I'm not, I don't, you know, I think that's a reason to be really worried about, about the integrity of our, uh, about cybersecurity and the integrity of our borders and geopolitical, and we should think about responses, all of those things. That doesn't seem to me to cast any 
cloud of illegitimacy on Trump's election. It's a reason to think this is a real problem. Um, it's a reason to, you know, ask a lot of probing questions of our news media about how it deals with these sorts of things. But what if we knew that Trump collaborated with that or someone in his campaign? That is a different thing, and it's the kind of thing we don't know. <laughs> so, so I'm not going to answer Christian's question. I'm going to say something completely different. Um, and then leave. <laughs> and then leave. Um, I think you can't become the thing that you're afraid of in order to win. Um, and that's what I see these electoral college manipulations as as being. Um, and Dahlia Lithwick's wonderful column um, in the New York Times, I, I think it was a great column. I think it was wrong. Um, the answer for Democrats is not to start being as disrespectful of institutions and procedures um, as they perceive the Republicans as being. That can't be right. You, you, you can't win by becoming the exact thing that you think is the problem. Um, and I would encourage the two of you when I leave, talk about North Carolina when I'm gone. Right. I mean, what's going on in North Carolina right now? The outgoing Republican majority in the legislature is tr instituting or attempting to institute all kinds of structural changes specifically to hinder the new the power of the incoming governor in unprecedented ways. Um, I, you don't get to play the game um, that way. And I think the reason that Democrats um, don't play that way is because they believe in these institutions and believe that they have value and need to be preserved. Um, and if you think we are in a moment of crisis, I mean, this is trite, but I also think it's true. You have to kind of decide what it is you believe in. Um, and I believe in the institutions of American government. Yeah. Cool. I, <laughs> I do too. So let's hit, that. let's hit pause. So we've, uh, we've, We've lost our expert, but um, but maybe These now that, happen. speaking of being bound and unbound, now we're really <laughs> unbound, right? Because we can just uh, say what we want and no one is here to holler and, and tell us what morons we are. It's perfect. Yeah, and I, you know, and it, it's not like Lori and I haven't talked about this already. Uh, like you so, said, the three of us have talked yeah, about and, it. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, uh, I've thought a lot about her arguments and, and, um, kind of my initial, certainly my emotional reaction to what I perceive to be some unfairnesses in the situation. That, that it's, it's not about that, though. The, and and I'm, I'm not even convinced so, that the so electors... Like, I, I can imagine myself as an elector having a real crisis of conscience. Yes. Because I think that if we knew... It, this, you know, it's, it sounds like conspiracy theorizing, but we, don't, we just don't know... Uh, we know that there was hacking. Very good evidence it was from the Russians. It did not change any votes. There was an, there were some Russian intrusions into some voting systems earlier in the year, but there's no evidence they changed any votes. You mean directly reaching directly. into vote tabulation right. machines or something of that nature? Right. The, right. the hack was indirect. So whatever influence they had, they had through the mediating mechanism of the minds of voters. Right. So voters were exposed to information. Uh, some of it accurate, some of it not. Some of it inspired by Vladimir Putin's efforts to manipulate us. Some of it not. Right. Most of it not. I mean, the, the ultimate hack is um, on is on 
is on us as an information processing system. Correct. It's on the individual human beings and, the, and casting votes or deciding to stay home or what have you. Um, and so in that sense, the, the, the Russia, the, the Putin-inspired and Putin-directed aspect of our information ecosystem leading into the November election um, is, is, is categorically different in as much as we would prefer going forward, I imagine, not to have foreign adversaries dictating the outcomes of our elections. Right. Um, I think everyone should be able to sign on to that if being a citizen of a particular country means anything at all. Uh, okay, fair enough. Uh, but, it's, but it's quite the same as everything else. If you think of it as just, look, it's just more of the information people had available. And, if, and so if you're going to point to a single piece of information and make that piece of information a grounds for undoing the outcome, we have a really big problem oh, on yeah. our hands. No, it's no, a much it bigger problem be. than we realize. Yeah, right? it, so, it can't be. So if you're Although thinking I, about I, the I, crisis I, of yeah. conscience that, a, that an elector might be having on December 19th, right? Um, I, I think it would take, you, you've, you trotted out a few scenarios, I think it would take something more like a videotape of him committing a murder um and i say that for really specific reasons i think people who i I think we're now in an information environment where if it's not sort of live video on a news network or something like that that millions of people see in real time i think some people simply deny it well let me let me put it this way i think Um, so i i think if Based on what we know now, I think the electors have an obligation to cast their votes according to the popular votes in their states, right? That's what I think. It's a customary obligation in half the instances. It's a legal one in the others, but put that all down to the same thing is, yeah, they should cast their votes in the way we would expect in the mine run of cases, which is if for, we the, knew for, for sure, the popular vote winners in their states. Right. If we knew for sure that Trump coordinated or his campaign coordinated with Putin to conduct the hack, to make use of the hack, collaborated with a foreign power right. to influence the election. There's still a causal question there. We don't, we, we, what we would know is that he's... I'm, unf- I'm not, I, I, I'm just trying to set up, I, I'm not saying that this happened. I mean, we just... I understand that. Yeah. Well, but my, my, I, I think if we knew that, if we knew those facts to be, if those were the facts and we knew them... Right. Uh, I think what we would know is that he's unfit to hold the office. I don't think we would know that his effort actually is what caused him to be elected to the office, right? Just because he tried, just because person A is in cahoots with person B to bring about a result, and just because that result is actually the one that happens, that doesn't mean they were the, the successful cause of oh, the no, result. Oh, no, I'm not talking about cause, yeah, right. Right, uh, so that, that's a further thing you'd have to figure out. Well, I don't know if, or, I'm not or, sure or, that's or a further thing. Or factor into your analysis. I'm not sure that's a further thing you'd have to figure out whether it caused it because it's a piece of information where if people had known in advance of the election they would never would have voted for the guy. Uh, yeah, I, mean, the I, cause- think, I think that's true to a degree. I mean, I think there are some some white nationalists who that wouldn't have influenced yeah, their but view at all. That's, that's a much smaller. I mean, this was a yeah, but if if we're talking about the outcomes in three states and and the total number of votes you have to shift is fewer than a hundred thousand, then he loses if this information is out before the election. Okay, I mean, I'll, I'll, about, I'll go with that assumption. We're talking about eighty thousand votes in three states. But, yeah. Okay. But regardless, I think as an elector, I mean, yeah, we were just trying to chase down what are the along the spectrum of things that you could find out after the election. 
what sorts of things should cause an elector to exercise some kind of independent judgment, because the House can't really do it, as I understand. Right, and I think, you know, in, in my mind, it's... Um, the House can impeach, and then the Senate can... Right. But that has to happen after... So, so my, yeah. in, my, in my mind, it's the, the, the nature of the information that would come out about something that was from before the election date itself um, w- would, I think, f- effectively what we're talking about is um, revelations that, that machines were, uh, actual physical machines w- were actually tampered with. Um, such that you you have you you have that degree of reliability about what the alternative reality would have been. Well, I don't. I mean, you can uh, imagine uh, a candidate who, you know, you find out that before the election they had there was correspondence saying that, you know, if you do this to help me, whatever it is, whether it's hacking or something else, and um, and in exchange I promise to do this on this other thing, and maybe even some money changes hands, and basically this is like kind of international bribery. I mean that's. It doesn't. That doesn't mean the election would have come out differently, but it's still. It's very troubling. Very, very troubling. But but, it, but it's it's so speculative to figure out w- w- what what an elector should do as a consequence of that information, right? I'm much more comfortable with all of this. Is I think deeply discomforting, but I'm I'm less uncomfortable <laughs> about uh, the electors responding uh, in the in the light of something that happened after the election. Because that's not something any of the voters could have taken into account at all, right? Um, well, I, I so, don't see so what difference that makes after the election, or because or the something which it, was not discoverable the, before the election. The difference it makes is 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 what got what got put through the process of voters getting to evaluate and make a decision in right. light of those facts. Of course, but that's things, the difference. Things which were things which occurred before the election, but which were not discovered before the election, are exactly in that category. Yes. But but they're subject to a very speculative that category of things. They weren't known, but they happened from before. That's subject to such a speculation about what the consequence of it having been known would have been, right? That's um, a, and, that, we, and we just don't have to worry that happened after the election because we just don't have to worry about speculation about what how would voters Why? have voted? I'm worried about it. <laughs> because it's not well. We don't have to worry about it in the same sense, right? It's not an it, it people. Because that fact didn't happen until after the election took place, no voter has to think about how it influences their vote until the next time that person stands for election. I suppose we could think. I of mean, it if in you had way. a president, if you if you had someone running, you really for, don't for the see the distinction in the common sense way I'm describing. No. Okay. I cool. mean, I mean, if if you had a, a candidate who, you know, you election day, there's a celebration, everyone goes to their house, someone goes up to the attic and finds like a hundred bodies up there. All the murders happened before the election. I, I don't see how that's different than finding out that the person killed 100 people the day after the election. Well, what you did was you, you created an example that, that, that even a very speculative process, we'd all feel pretty comfortable saying, yeah, where, where that winds up, a collection of 100 murdered bodies, uh, where that winds up is that candidate loses, right? If that fact had come to light. Um, but we're not talking about those facts, Right. At least in our current circumstance, we're talking. I just about don't see how the pre and post is different in that regard. So, okay. So the post. I, I've, I've I've explained it. I'm not going to do it again because it'd be boring <laughs> for listeners. But I, I, I've said what I could say about that. No, but the so the post the post election events which occur, and you say, well, th- these are things that the that the that voters realize they couldn't have taken into into account because they happen after the election. 
it still seems to me that under the standard where we care about whether it would have affected the election if it had been known, I don't see how that's any different for post-election events than it is for pre-election events. In each case, it seems to me you're worried about, you know, should the elector do something to correct what the electorate would have done had they had access to this information? The objection, the objection to an elector correcting something it has a very different force when it's, I think, when it's... Um, uh, some when some version of it is stuff voters actually knew about. Uh, I think we agree on that. Yeah, it it has a, I think a, an intermediate level of force when it's something they didn't know about um, because it hadn't come to light yet, but it did happen beforehand, and so it just feel it has a feeling like we're we're you're intervening in the voter outcome in a way at least that makes me let me speak for myself it just makes me more uncomfortable something that's happened after election day no one could have taken into account no one could have known about it are we going to correct it that is a very fraught question complicated fraught question um i agree uh, but it, it at least i don't need to worry about the fact that i'm overturning in some arguable sense, uh, certainly what the loser will argue. Yeah, right? I, I just think I'm overturning yeah. uh, the electors' preference, the, the voters' preferences that they registered on election. Yeah, day. I just think you're doing that with respect to either event, and that squeamishness that you feel about pre-election events that we didn't know about, and you know, I think that just shows the very high standard, the very high bar. Fair enough, right? And and I think that bar is equally high for post-election okay. events as well. Yeah, but, fair, it is high. You're right. So fair enough. Yeah, and 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 I guess the other worry is, how are you going to find these things out? You know, so so if if the person who did them becomes president and has access to the information, uh, and and the you know, or how how does this come to light? It feels like we're on a short fuse. Yeah, we are, and I. I... And look, I don't know what happened. <laughs> And that's, I think in a, a, in a weird yeah. way, it's I, I think this electoral, uh, a big problem with this electoral college mechanism um, with its, I, th I think, largely um, mythical independent judgment sheen to it, right, um, is that it, it sort of fools us into thinking any of this is worth thinking about, right? right? It, it really isn't. Yeah. Um, it, it's, uh, we, we've got a process for, for, having an election where voters can vote, um, that person is going to take that office. And then it's uh, the, there are two ways that changes, right? The next time they stand for election, they lose. Or there's some other mechanism in place in our system, we call it impeachment and conviction in the Senate, right? There's some other means for removing them before that other day arrives. And that's right. it. Right. Or, or, or and, uh, less formal pressures that cause them to resign or something sure, like that. Sure, that's yeah, it. Yeah. Yes, I'm talking about involuntary, yeah. removing yeah, yeah, a yeah. person who does not want to leave. Right. Right. Um, and in Wisconsin, it was they had a process called a recall process, yeah. in which they, they employed. Uh, it, uh, Governor Walker was not recalled, mm -hmm. um, but, but there is a recall process. We don't have that for the presidency, and maybe we should. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know. I don't um, think so. But, but in any event, right? Um, there's the, the, a person who gets voted, gets elected on election day, right? In my little mental model, right? Not only is there a national popular vote, that's what I would prefer, um, but you know, I think they ought to take the oath of office like a week later. I mean, it's right. li like it's you won, it's your job. Uh, now you have that job, and we have two ways to get rid of you. 
uh, uh, one is to vote you out, the other is to use that, whatever the alternative mechanism is. Um, uh, and, 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 and so we go forward, right? We learn what we learn, that, that body for getting rid of you, uh, whether it's the voters in a recall or, or a legislature in an impeachment process, right? That'll be public, they'll ferret things out, they'll have hearings, they'll lease documents, they'll et cetera, et cetera, and everyone will know, and people can watch that process, register their views to their elected representatives. That all sounds like, you know, as terrible as it will be to go through if it ever happens again, um, you know, that's a public process. We can yeah. work our way through it, right? This electoral college thing, again, is sort of like, oh, these people no one's ever heard of are going to get together <laughs> on the 19th, and 20 of them are going to do this funky thing, and it just feels like, bah, that's feels, a disaster. Well, okay, I mean, I think, you know, this episode hopefully will be out tomorrow, which is Friday. Yeah. The Electoral College meets in the respective states on Monday. Yep. And I agree with I, I agree with you. I expect fully that what will happen is that they will vote for Trump as expected. Right. There may be a few defections, but I don't expect them to be to be major. So an important we're not having this conversation because I actually think this is a a realistic possibility. But, you know, um, you know, Jeffrey Stone has written a really interesting article. Yeah. Obviously, Larry Lessig is involved in it. Yep. And I think it does raise interesting questions about the nature of that institution. Yes. And about the kind of matter of conscience that an individual elector has. Yeah. And how, because on that person's shoulders in, in an important sense is, you know, this dramatic calculation that we argued about so much the other, the other night about the, the risk of civil war on the one hand. Yep. The risk of, of granting, like, you know, there, there's this other piece that I saw about how no one recognizes their dictator, right? No, no, no society recognizes its dictator. They don't come in wearing the clothes of the last dictator. Right. Right. And again, I'm not, I don't want to go too far with this uh, right now, but it is a, it, it, it would be, hmm. Look, depending on what happens, uh, the people who, for good or bad, right, uh, the people who do what, they're scheduled to do on the 19th yeah. of December, which is to go fill out a ballot uh, for the president, vice president of the United States. Um, those people in the future are going to perhaps think things like, you know, I'm really happy I did that that day. I played a role in something I think is really great. Or alternatively, um, crap, <laughs> <laughs> I did that that day. Um, this is terrible, and I'm part of why it's happening. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, you're right. That's very fate. That's a fateful thing to know. I'm glad I'm not one of them. I'll say that. Um, if I Wait, were, you, we're in Georgia. If you were an elector, what would you do? If I were a Republican elector, uh, you, elector. Well, the Democratic ones aren't going. So if if I were a member of the Republican Party, we're boy, are we in an alternate <laughs> universe? Um, I, you know, I, rather than talk about what I would do. Um, I, there, there was a Republican elector, I think, from the state of Texas, who, who, who resigned. I yeah. think recently, and and I think some people really castigated that person. Oh, you shouldn't do that. Blah, blah. Um, I actually feel like, you know, it reminds me of sort of the Saturday Night Massacre in the Nixon administration, right? So, you know, Nixon says to, I think it was Attorney General Richardson, fire Archibald Cox as special prosecutor, and Richardson says no. I think it was Richardson says yeah. no, right? And and Nixon just keeps firing people till he winds up. You know, I'm not going to make any of the arch comments I want to make until he winds up with Robert Bork, 
mm-hmm. who's the Solicitor General of the United States, who's like, oh, sure, I'll fire the guy. Where is he? <laughs> Let me fire him. Um, you know, I, I think there's something very honorable in saying, uh, I resign. Here's why. Uh, I'm being very public about the fact that I can't in good conscience do the thing that I know I'm rightly obliged to do. Yep, that you're obligated to do. Right. It is, I'm obliged and I'm rightly obliged. Like there is, this. all of this points to the thing that I am obliged to do and I really should do it. Right. Because I really cannot bring myself to do it. I'm going to remove myself from the situation. I think there's something deeply honorable about that. If you explain it to people. Right, right, because this is a very public process and a very uh, an important process about public power. Uh, I think to slink off, you know, oh, I'm feeling a little <coughs> sick, and I'm gonna, <laughs> you know, I think that's crummy, right? Right, um, but th- but these electors didn't do that. The ones we, who resigned, at least the one I'm thinking of who resigned, said, "I can't." Exactly. Right, I can't perform. Like I'm and, obligated to to vote for Trump, but I can't do it. And, and I think that's so. So unlike the people who are very critical of that person. And I saw that in the wake of that, that, that some people were very critical of it. I saw it and I thought, well, I think that's quite admirable. Right. Um, hmm. You convinced him. Yeah, I find that convincing. I, I, uh, it would be difficult. I, I don't see myself defecting based on what I know now. Um, I think so. But, but based on what I know now, I also, boy, yeah, resignations. <laughs> It'd be hard to do it. It'd be hard to actually yeah. go and cast that vote, I think. for, And I think for a lot of people, it will be. Um, but on yeah, the, but yeah. the mind's a funny thing, right? So yeah. I think, um, you know, I think that what we know about human psychology is that the people who are, are going to cast that vote on the 19th of December, on next Monday, um, they will have done a pretty good job before they do that of, of suppressing in their minds the things that suggest they're about to make a terrible mistake. On the the ground of the things that we know might happen, right? Yeah, they Um, they just don't think those things will happen. That's what I'm saying. Or they, or they, the things that you think of as terrible that you don't want to happen, they they think are great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, so it, so I don't. And all I'm trying to say is, I don't think the people who cast their whatever vote they cast on the 19th are going to be feeling a lot of anguish about it. Mm -hmm. The the mind is really good at at preventing anguish. By, by sort of aligning and suppressing some things and highlighting other things and sort of organizing the content of your mind to all, all sort of fit a nice story and picture where you're doing a good thing. Right. I mean, I don't know. To sum up, I think that what we definitely agree on, right, is that accepting the results of the election, no matter how painful, is, I mean, is the key to making democracy work. Democracy doesn't work if you revisit fundamental questions with every election. And you make every, every choice to go through with a popular mandate of what, under whatever rules, a matter of individual conscience. It, at some point, you have to submit to the rules of democracy. Like I'm totally on board with that. Yeah, like you, uh, you. But <laughs> if you, if you treat these if you treat these um, these moments as simply opportunities to scream repeatedly, um, but wait, we're not, we don't have it right yet. Right. That's not going to work. So you have to be willing to accept that you're that that you can at the at one and the same time you can be deeply deeply convinced that the choice that's been made is profoundly wrong, and at the same time that you need to accept it. 
Right. So that you can live another day. And we've talked on the show before about the ways that, that one can resist a system, right? There, you know, one is just disagreement. I'm otherwise bought into the system, but I disagree. Another is to be a revolutionary. You know, the system is totally off track and, and you reject it. And, and that's out in the open. The other is what I call like, you know, being a saboteur, right? You, which, which is really the furthest along the spectrum of, of resistance because you are trying to kind of gum up the works, but not openly embracing that identity. And, you know, these are not accepting the results of an election puts you along that spectrum, right? Outside acceptance. Right. I'm having trouble finding the words because I'm having trouble finding the right path because on the one hand, I, there is, you know, I do accept the results of the election. I do think that the electors, based on what we know now, should, and that, uh, uh, should, should vote for Trump in, in the jurisdictions in which he won. And I do think that he should take the oath. But there are suspicions that trouble me greatly. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a lot of information that we need. Yep. And I think, you know, I think we do have other institutional mechanisms uh, yeah, but those we, have to work. That's if, the key. If those we will have avail, to work. If we will avail ourselves of yeah. them. Well, we'll find out if they work or not, right? We have to avail ourselves of them. I think we have to, again, adverting to our conversation the other night, I think we need to, um, I say we, I think, I, I hope for the country that Congress creates a, you know, Russia hacking this election commission on the model they used to create the 9-11 Commission uh, with the kind of independent membership, independent investigative power, public exposure of information that's been gathered and sifted and synthesized using, you know, good methods um, that produce reliable information as we understand those terms. Um, I, I, I think we very much need that right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't actually think it's likely to happen uh, because the partisan divide over what, will, what, it will, what the consequences are is so obvious uh, uh, that, the, that politics will prevent it from being created. But, but I, I, I hope for the country that it's created because I think, again, I think we really need it. Yeah, I mean, I hope not because I think... You hope not what? I, I mean, I, ho- I hope that partisan politics won't prevent the creation of that kind of entity. I, I hope so because, too. I just fear that it, that it will. But. You know, especially if you think it's a, it's a low probability event that, that Trump and his campaign were involved in this. I mean, if, if you think that's a very low probability thing, then the, the whole point of this is to investigate cybersecurity around our election resources. Right. And, and you, would, you would hope that, uh, that a person wouldn't react to that by saying, well, yeah, but I mean, given that it's a low probability event, uh, you know, these resources could be spent in so much better way. And I think, I, it, I, I think no. that that would be penny wise and pound foolish in the worst possible way. We should have this commission and we should spend the money it takes to have it done well. And the important message is uh, yeah, if they weren't, if the campaign was not involved, if the campaign was not involved at all, and it's just about Putin, we need to be really clear. I don't think that Putin's or Russia's or Russian entities' involvement in the uh, hacking and, and trying to influence the election diminishes the legitimacy of the Trump win. 
And we have to be really clear about that. So no yeah, matter yeah, what we find on I that I don't score, either in right. the sense that, again, this was all filtered through the minds of voters who took in information of all kinds from all different sources, some of it accurate, some of it not, and made of it what they would and voted. That's certainly what I did. I took in information from lots of sources, made a decision, and cast my ballot accordingly. And so well, why I, w- I don't want to go that far because <laughs> I don't necessarily think more information is better. Right. I, I don't either, but yeah. it, but it but it's it, it the world is what it is. I mean, yeah. there's information. There was a bunch of fake news crap, and there was a, but there are other things. People read what they read, et cetera, et cetera. So you get. I mean, got, at a certain point, you just have to say there's information that was available. People filtered it. They voted. That's what elections are like. And here's here's a problem that we don't want to see repeated again. Correct. And I and what I'm saying is that no matter, uh, n- you know, no matter what our conclusion about its effect on the election, whether it whether Russia, if, you know, was successful or not in throwing it, that that doesn't cast, you know, that any doubt on the legitimacy of the win. No, it right. doesn't to me. And I would hope other people would, would conclude the same. But whether or not they do, uh, I, I think... But that, that's different than saying it didn't affect the win. Like it may well have caused the win. Just like in any close election, almost everything causes everything. Exactly. Right. Which is, which again, is the situation that we're in. Like under the rules we have, the, the result, the outcome is super close, right? Because we, we determine the vote with these geographical delimiters and in those three geographical areas had a very small number of votes, relatively speaking, been changed to the other side, you know, outcome would be different. So it's a very close race, yeah. which means it has a bajillion causes um, rather than one big obvious cause. And uh, yeah, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't cast uh, uh, doubt on the legitimacy. But, but we should find out what the truth is about what happened and if we can prevent it from happening again. All right, we're going to have to cut it off. Okay. Do you think? I'm feeling like I'm hearing myself in my, you know, we're in this new environment again, yeah. recording. Yep. And I'm not quite used to it yet. Yep. I keep hearing myself. Yep. Ugh. Yeah. Just one last question. Sure. Normally you're the one who does this, but <laughs> it's like the anything else? Got anything Didn't else? I? Got anything else? One more thing? One more thing? Yeah. Because you at the beginning were like, Oh, there's all these bajillion questions. And we're you know, we've we've kind of we pared it down pretty quickly and got to a pretty small patch of Yeah. You know, are there other things that that, that you think people need to be thinking about and talking oh, about geez. and wondering I mean, about that you can meaningfully share here without taking another five hours? No, I mean, uh, look, I, I'm kind of a wreck about it. I mean, as a lot of people are, and it's, as I said, I'm, I'm, I work very hard to separate my policy preferences from my kind of structural concerns right. about democracy. Right. The conflict of interest stuff is out of control. Totally out of hand. The Russian connections are troubling. Uh... The, the the relation between democracy and information is something I think we need to talk about more. You know, as someone like me who's really interested... Say that in the, again. The, re- the relation between democracy and information. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the press in, is... The in press the is, modern world, right? Yeah. Information, not just information, but, but the way it flows, the way it's developed, distributed, processed. The way it's processed. I mean, I've been... You know, just even today, I was like just looking over my Facebook and Twitter and it's like every other day I'm like, you know what? I just want to give up because <laughs> we have people here operating under such different frameworks and you can see that, you know, I had people linking to like, uh, you know, that Clinton cash book and all these other, it relitigating Hillary concerns from the election and 
it's not that there aren't any legitimate concerns about Hillary Clinton. There, there are. I mean, no candidate is perfect, and and you may have very good grounds for not liking one. In, you know, in an extreme way, that, that's fine. But some of this stuff is just stupid. And it's like to fix this, you got to go back to the beginning of somebody's life and start over again, almost, right? I mean, it's just because the, the framework, the frameworks are so, you know, how, how do this basic problem of, of as human, how do we figure out what is true and what is not true? Yeah. And and there is such a huge incentive to convince people of X or to convince them of Y, and we're getting better and better at doing that. Um. The, the vectors of attack are far more dispersed than they ever have been. Mm. Like to influence a voter, you don't have to find your way onto one of three network news uh, right. broadcasts or, or to or, major or, papers. Right, or one of a handful of major national papers or there major was, national magazines. Right. And, and, and people will say that's great because elite shouldn't control, you know, there's a real danger in elites controlling information. I'm totally on board with that. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, like... <laughs> I guess this is the framing we kind of started with. This was, there was a lot of hacking of our kind of electoral hardware in this election. And by electoral hardware, I don't mean voting machines. I mean the human brains that made decisions about how to vote, right? There was, uh, you know, whether you, it's the fake, the true fake news. These are people who publish stories without regard to their truth or falsity. And just, you know, this is, um, just to make money, right? So it's different than propaganda or having a slant or whatever. I mean, right. there's that. There's, uh, I don't know. I, I we got to stop. Okay. <laughs> I feel like I'm not saying anything interesting at this point. But probably we've probably done what we can do today. You ready to button this up? You bet.